Hello, welcome to Talking Fit. I'm Paul Rose. I'm joined as ever by Luke Morgan. And today we're joined by Alexander Nemeth, the first Hungarian ever to summit all of the seven summits. Alexander, thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. In just a couple of minutes, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Hey, uh, hi everyone, and, and thank you very much for thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, so um, my name is Alex. Um, I am, uh, as you could call it, a summit summiteer. So in May two thousand eighteen, um, I summited Mount Everest, uh, and with that, I also finished uh, the seven summits challenge, climbing the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. Yeah, I guess I love, you know, I love mountains. I love adventures. I love going on adventures. I love talking about adventures. Um, most of them I've done solo. Uh, and I just love anything to do with kind of nature, uh, mountains, and just being outside, um, exploring, um, pushing your limits, and just, uh, yeah, experience some amazing sunsets. <laughs> do you have a favorite from the, the Seven Summits? Okay, favorites. Um, I guess I would say Denali. Denali was a really hard one, a really, really tough one, but I trained super, super hard um, before that expedition. Um, but Denali was everything I love about mountaineering and I love about expedition. Um, it, it was remote. You had to carry all your gear, you had to carry all the food enough for three weeks. So, you know, there was no support there. You had to not just carry your own stuff, but you had to carry group gear as well. Um, and you had to battle with the elements, uh, with your own mind. You know, it was just um, kind of mentally, emotionally and physically such a, such a tough expedition. But it's everything I love about it. So you are in um, the, the Nali National Park. And once you dropped um, on the glacier and that's your start, point from there you are just surrounded by these beautiful you know white big big mountains um and you know you can't see a building nearby you, you know it's not touristic it's just really you and the rest of your team rope together uh for three weeks and you're just in this absolutely gorgeous environment and a beautiful landscape you mentioned uh your team did you use the same team for each summit or did some people do some and not others or was it just a completely different team with each each mountain? It was uh, completely different every time. Um, and after doing my first one, actually before doing my first one, which is Albrus in, in Russia, so Europe, Europe's highest mountain, um, I remember... Um, the very few people I told about, you know, what I was about to do, they were worried about my health. They were worried about avalanches. They were worried about, um, you, you know, a, a anything that could have happened. And, and all I could think about was how I'm going to fit in a team, you know, how I'm going to suddenly, you know, you, you, you meet people at the beginning of the expedition you never met before. You don't know them and you just, Boom, suddenly put together and you have to, you have to jail. You kind of have to get on well. Um, you know, you, you sleep in the same tent. You are, um, you know, you're sharing those experiences. You are on the same rope. Uh, you're going through all those experiences. So 
I guess for me, it was always a big question mark before each expedition, who I'm going to meet, um, am I going to get on well, are they going to accept me? And I think after the first or second, I, I definitely managed to relax into it and, and think, hey, you know, you are brought together by, you know, to do... Um, uh, to, to go climb a mountain and you don't have to just like in life or you know in an office environment you don't have to be best friends with everyone um, uh, I guess because before I used to do a lot of solo stuff you know um, being in the mountains by myself uh, training by myself um, and then suddenly you know you meet a, a new group of people uh, that you know you have to spend the next couple of weeks with so yeah um, to answer your question um, each expedition yeah I went with a, a different company and a different group of people and you mentioned training what sort of training would you do for for these kind of expeditions is it different depending on the mountain and the altitude you're going to go to or do you have a kind of standard base and then adapt bits and pieces of it for for the different um locations that's a really really good question um and the answer to that is that I treated every mountain as an individual mountain. Of course, I always knew Everest was going to be the last. So each experience uh, led me to Everest. But before every expedition, I, I looked at that particular climb and that particular mountain. Um, and I researched it. I looked at why people failed previously. Um, what other people found as a struggle. I also know my weaknesses and my strengths as well. Um, so I just really had to sit down and think, think about it and, and make a plan for myself uh, leading up to each and every single mountain. Um, and I approached them in, um, in, in, yeah, in, in a different way because one could be you know, one could be an 8,000 meter mountain, uh, just like Everest. And another one could be um, a mountain in Indonesia where it's, it's a rock climb. And I, I you know, you have to, to, to train differently for a four or five day expedition. Then you have to take, train for Everest where you spend six weeks and you are, you know, as soon as you land, you are already at altitude. So, yeah. So if we focus on Everest for a little bit, just because okay. it's, it's the most famous, it's the highest, it's kind of the iconic one, it's the one that people have heard of, or the most people have heard of. Just kind of talk us through that. So you say you, you land and you're at altitude, and then obviously you've got a long trek to base camp before you really start the proper mountaineering. So how, actually going up to, to base camp, that trek, is renowned for being quite crowded there's a lot of people mm. there and presumably that changes the higher you get the higher you get the fewer people are, are going up to that level so yeah. how does the the kind of atmosphere change between the people who are on the mountain from day one mm. going through to the end of week six Mm, yeah. Uh, so for Everest, I had um, I had a very specific approach, and as soon as I knew that uh, my Everest expedition that I was uh, accepted in the team and I could get all the funds, so it, it's definitely going ahead. Um, I decided to uh, pre-acclimatize at home uh, for a number of reasons. 
so first of all, uh, in 2012, um, after I quit my job uh, and I went on a three week uh, solo hiking trip in the Nepal Himalayas, I have actually already done that trek. I went up to Gokia Lakes, did the Chola Pass, went to Everest Base Camp, and it was all pre-season, so there were no climbers there, no tents. So I managed to experience the mountain, I managed to experience Everest Base Camp um, in a completely different way. And I descended by, a, as you call it, that quite busy touristic route. Um, but by that time I was on my way down. So that was 2012. Um, also, halfway through the Seven Summit, um, I went to attempt to climb Amadablam. Again, uh, you get the same kind of a similar route up to Amadablam. Um, so that was the second time I was already in Nepal, in the Himalayas. So for Everest, um, for, 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 for a number of reasons, I decided that perhaps I should look into pre-acclimatizing at home. And when I fly out to Kathmandu, spend as little time as possible um, in the city and fly to Lukla uh, with a commercial plane, a small plane. And then as soon as I land in Lukla, I would take a helicopter up to 4,200 meters in ferry chair, at which point, so my, the rest of my team would be there on their way. Um, and that's where I would cut about a week of trekking in. Um, and uh, my reason was, well, what was very important for me is to stay and keep healthy. You know, I spent years and years climbing, coming back from expeditions, exhausted, back to work, back to training, another expedition. And it can take a lot out of you. And for Everest, you know, I just put all my eggs in the basket and I said to myself, you really have to focus on this one. You have to stay injury free and you have to stay healthy. And I managed to do that in the UK while working and living and traveling abroad would work. Um, so I thought, hey, how to cut out, you know, how to minimize the risks and how to stay as healthy as possible. Um, your listeners may have heard of the Kumbu cough that people get, some people get on, 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 on the, these high altitude tracks. So I thought, hey, how could I, you know, minimize that as well? And for me, the best option was to fly as, as high as I could um, and meet the rest of my team then, but not too high to... Um, uh, not too high to fall, you know, to, uh, to get, um, you know, to have altitude sickness. So ferry just seemed like a perfect place. And I consulted the guy who um, I climbed with, with his company and Mike uh, Hamill. He's the author of the Seven Summits, Climbing the Seven Summits. Um, he was my guide on Antarctica. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's got over almost 25 years of guiding experience. So I listened to him. And we made this plan kind of together or I, I ran it past him, you know, I wouldn't have just done it if he said, hey, Alex, this is dangerous. So this is, this might, you know, have bad effect on you, on your body. So we had a chat about it. I pre-acclimatized at home um, and everything went absolutely perfectly. So I landed in Kathmandu. Um, I think I spent two nights there straight up to Lukla and from Lukla in the helicopter, with all my gear, uh, flew up to Ferry Chair. Um, and then that's where I met the rest of my team and we hiked, uh, we, we continued together. So one of the first bits you 
come to or one of the first kind of landmarks if you like you come to when you leave base camp is the Kumbu Ice Fall which is obviously very iconic very famous part of Everest expeditions so just tell us a little bit about about that what is the Kumbu Ice Fall what makes it so iconic and yeah uh, so the Kumbu Icefall is um, famous for all the wrong reasons, unfortunately, you know, um, imagine giant car, house-sized ice blocks, um, and you have to find your way through. So above uh, base camp, you have to kind of hike through, trek through, climb through the Kumbu Ice, the, it, it, like a giant ice field. Um, which is constantly moving and it's, it's something I find just absolutely beautiful because you feel so alive, you know, you can listen to nature, you can listen to these um, big blocks kind of shifting um, and you can hear them growling, you can hear them, it's, it's such a bizarre experience but um, it was actually something that I was really, really looking forward to and um, to, to experience and one of the reasons to climb from the south and not from the north. Um, I really wanted to experience the complex. I really wanted to experience, you know, climbing on the ladder with, um, you know, deep crevasses beneath you. Um, I know it's really dangerous. I know, you know, in the past, um, many, many people died there, you know, people wouldn't even make, climbers wouldn't even make it to camp one. So that's your first real, real big challenge. Um, and also because that's your way up Everest. And in order to climb Everest, you can't just go through this ice for once and then continue up to the top. You have to do acclimatization rounds. So first you go up to camp one, uh, through the Kumbu Ice Fall. You, you sleep at Camp 1, you come back. Second time, you go through again, you go up to Camp 1, sleep there. You climb to Camp 2, sleep there. And in our program, we pushed uh, up on the Lotte face, we tagged Camp 3, came all the way. So this was acclimatization round two. And the third time is when you go to the summit. So you have to go through the Kumbu Ice Fall three times. Um, and during our um, second rotation, uh, we were radioed. We, we were just about to enter the Kumbu Ice Fall on the way back when we were radioed that a part of the route collapsed um, because of... Um, you know, because of the, of, of the movement. And we had to wait for what they call the Icefall Doctors, this group of highly trained, experienced man, Nepali uh, mountaineers who then come back uh, and fix the route. Uh, so basically they put the leathers where you kind of need to cross these big blocks uh, or the big gaps in the ground. Um, and if the ropes got damaged, then, then they fix that as well. So it's, it's quite a technical um, quite a technical section um, and because it's all kind of icy and moving um, each time you go through it you have to go through in the middle of the night so each of the rotations started bang in the middle of the night you know when you would be sleeping otherwise or 
you know, but I, I trained heaps at home back, back in London. I trained heaps for that. So I would set my alarm um, on a weekday uh, at 2 a.m. I already had my uh, backpack ready and I would get up. I would go, I would go for a hike um, in the dark, in the pitch dark in Richmond Park um, near where I live. And then I would come back, quick shower, back to bed. Half an hour later, the alarm goes off and, and let's go to work. So I would train my body for scenarios like that or um yeah i I would really pre-train my body and do as much as i can then when you're in these situations then your body is used to not just waking up and getting up in the middle of the night but also performing you know not just your body but your mind as well yeah i never thought i'd hear someone talk about training for everest in richmond park I guess, you know, I, I, I lived in Wimbledon and uh, um, I was very, very lucky to live in such a beautiful part of London. And I made sure that the resources that were available, that the places that were available uh, to me on a daily basis, like Wimbledon Common, Richmond Park, Surrey Hills, um, I just trained there um, as much as I could, yes. <laughs> And is the reason for doing it in the middle of the night when you're up on Everest, is that just because that's the coldest time? So there's less chance of things shifting around while you're, while you're climbing? Exactly. That's absolutely the reason um, because it's still cold. Um, and actually almost all the mountains, all the summits happen. This, the summit push happens in the middle of the night. Uh, I guess it also gives you that amount of time uh, to get to the top in the morning. And then it gives you that time to then come back down. Um, and you, you don't spend the entire day, obviously depending on the mountain, but you don't spend the entire day, you know, descending. Um, but then you get back to safety uh, or to a lower camp at a reasonable time where you can rest and take on hydration and, and eat. And um, yeah. You mentioned quitting your job in 2012 to start all of this. What actually got you into mountaineering? Have you been doing it way beyond 2012 or no, what I... happened? What made you want to quit your job? I wasn't, I worked for, um, I worked in uh, higher education. Uh, I worked for a very niche uh, college in Essex uh, and I did international student recruitment. So my job was to represent the college in uh, countries like uh, Japan, China, India, Norway, Russia. So I spent um, two and a half years while working for the uh, school, uh, I spend it like traveling back and forth. And uh, I guess I just wanted to do something for myself. Uh, I I quit my job. I moved back to London. Uh, I moved into uh, my friend's uh, uh, place temporarily. I said to him, hey, Nick, like, can I, can I stay on your couch for a couple of months? You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure I love Wimbledon. I'd like to buy a place here. I'd like to start a business here. I'd like to find a job here, but can I stay, can I stay there for a couple of months? A couple of months ended up, Nick and I lived together for nine and a half years. Uh, <laughs> so it was just, I guess when I moved there, um, I started doing photography. I absolutely, I absolutely love photography. And I noticed that, you know, I, 
what my passion was always is, is take pictures of sports, take pictures of, uh, of cars. You know, I would be going to Formula One races and just again, do something that's not very feminine or not very girly. Um, I would have my huge, you know, uh, uh, telephoto lens and heavy camera gear, um, just lugging around like racing tracks and taking pictures of cars. And then, and I love that, you know, I really, really enjoy that. But I looked into some areas that I wasn't really good at and that was landscape. You know, I had, I still have no patience for a lot of things, but, you know, sitting somewhere with your camera in, in, in nature just didn't really appeal to me. And I thought, hang on a second, if you're not good at it, you should maybe try to do something about it. So I would pack my tent and my camera gear into my little 17-year-old Cleo, you know, drive up to Scotland or drive over to the Alps on my own um, and just spend some time in the mountains and try to be inspired and try to see if I had a style, if I liked it. And I really liked it. And when I did go to the Himalayas in, in 2012, that was purely just to get away from everything and, and just to spend, you know, two, three weeks um, hiking in, in, in the mountains and just have my camera with me. I had no idea that in a few years, in, in two years, I would start the Seven Summits. That wasn't even absolutely not even on the horizon at the time so i i i love that and i i love when i um get to answer a question like that because i get to kind of remind the clock a little bit and just think about how things happened and how naturally things happened and organically and how kind of life was steering me to towards the seven summits so yeah, I started taking pictures of mountains and I came back from the Himalayas with some really cool pictures. And I thought, hey, I really want to push this a little bit more. But to do that, you have to get higher. You have to get to more exposed places and more, more hard parts of the mountains. So I went up to Scotland again. I did a, a three-day um, mountain winter mountaineering course just a one-on-one course and i remember trying to get through this ridge this snowy ridge and, and i have fear of heights okay and the uh, the instructor didn't know that so there i am um on this ridge and we are we are not even in a uh, you know in the himalayas and there i am thinking how am i gonna get from this point to where he is if I don't face my fears and I'm looking down, big drop on the right, big drop on the left. I'm like, you just have to face your fears and do it. So anyway, that was the last day of the winter mountaineering course. We got back to the car and I said to Richard, I said, well, you know, this has been an amazing experience and it was fantastic. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And I really feel like I did push myself a little bit. And I don't think he kind of got it. And I said, yeah, because I have this massive fear of heights. <laughs> And, and then I got home, um, and that's what, that was February 2014, and I got home, and two months later, I sat to Nick, I was just having dinner, you know, like a nice April evening, I said to Nick, hey, like, I really want to do a challenge that would be just a bit, just a bit out of my comfort zone. I want to take my camera, of course, you know, I want to capture it. And because I always love traveling, I wouldn't just go to, for example, one country or one mountain range and just keep climbing there for a number of years. I wanted to travel to 
seven completely different or just completely different parts of the world, experience the cultures there, see very different looking mountains and do very different climate experiences. So it just made sense to do the seven summits. Um, as I said, the only climate experience I had was the three-day mountaineering course in, in Scotland. And then I had two months to get ready for the first. So when you were in, uh, obviously you say you went to Nepal, went to the Himalayas in 2012. There are only 14 mountains in the world that are over 8,000 meters. Um, one of them is obviously Everest and 8,000 meters is significant because they say it's around that level that you enter the death zone. So did you have experience at being at that kind of altitude before you went to Everest or had you not? being up to that kind of that threshold line previously no no I haven't and I guess perhaps this is one of the reasons I it took me almost four years to climb all seven mountains that and financially as well but financial reasons but because I didn't want to rush Everest you know I wanted to um, mature um, and have as much experience and exposure uh, in the mountains as I could uh, without breaking the bank even further. <laughs> so of course the 8,000 meter mountains, they, um, they're not just take an awful lot of money and time to prepare for, but the expeditions themselves are really long. Um, so then I looked at the seven summits and I looked at how to do this, you know, how to, how to climb them in which order, which mountain would, me, would give me experience and skills for the next one. And amongst these seven, there's Aconcagua, a South America's highest mountain in Argentina. And they call it a 7,000 meter mountain because it's near the equator. It gets super brutal winds and weather system. So it's just shy of 7,000 meters, but they call it a 7,000 meters. So I thought, okay, if I leave that maybe for the fifth mountain, um, then that would give me that sort of exposure to, to even, you know, to more altitude. And then after Aconcagua, I went back to the Himalayas to attempt Amadablam. Again, Amadablam wasn't, yeah, I have to get to the top. I just wanted to be back in the big mountains. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to look around and see six, seven, eight thousand meter peaks around me to soak it up, soak up that experience go back to the UK kind of the final time for the kind of final round of preparation. And then the next time I'm back in the Himalayas, it will be for Everest. Um, I think there will be a rule soon that you have to climb another 8,000 meter mountain before attempting Everest. And I totally agree with that. And if I did have to, of course I would have. Um, and I, I would have, of course, climbed perhaps, I don't know, Choyu is, 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 is a really nice uh, 8,000 meter peak to climb. Um, but fortunately for me at the time when I, when I climbed Everest, uh, you didn't need to have another 8,000 meter. So obviously you've mentioned that there are only 14 that are 8,000 meters. They're all in either Nepal or Pakistan. Everest is almost nine. It's what, about 8,800. And those kind of altitudes, I think, 
in the UK, we've got nothing that's even remotely close to that. Even in the Alps, you don't really get close to that kind of altitude. How how much, I mean, this is going to sound dark, but how much of a difference is there between, say, a 6,000-meter peak and a 7,000-meter peak and an 8,000-meter peak and an Everest? Is it, because it's, I'm assuming it's not as simple as, okay, an 8,000-meter peak is the same as doing a 7,000-meter peak and doing Snowden, because they're, it's, it's just not comparable. No, no, uh, y- yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I think what happens, uh, I kind of especially in the Himalayas, you know, the, the further high, the further up you go, the, the less, the colder it gets, the less resources you have, um, the more your body needs to be trained. And this is why for an 8,000 meter peak, this is why the expeditions are so long because you need, you need the time uh, to, for your body to, to acclimatize. Um, so as I mentioned previously, I mentioned earlier, uh, for Everest, I had this approach that I'm going to, I'm going to have to do everything I possibly can before the trip um, to make sure I'm not just fit and healthy, but I am ready for this. So for a month leading up to the trip, um, I slept in an attitude tent at home in my own room so i rented i rented this device and uh, it's basically a generator and then a tube comes out of the generator and it goes into a tent and you put this um, tent over your bed and every day an hour before bedtime you turn this generator on and there's uh, there's a chart on on the generator um so i started at i started on 2200 meters that was my first night and um, every night then i turned it higher and higher and higher until the last week of that month i spent i slept over six and a half thousand meters in my own bed. So, you know, I, 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 I can't really say I slept because you can't really sleep at that altitude. You know, you're uncomfortable, you have headaches, you have, even if you get to sleep, you get these crazy nightmares, or I did, um, and then you're dehydrated. Then, then if you drink too much, then you have to kind of zip it open and get, sneak out and go to the bathroom and get, jump back in. And, but this is what happens, you know, in, in, in real life as well. You are, um, you are, you know, you are at high altitude and you have to drink a lot. You have to look after yourself. You have to accept that some nights you just simply not going to be able to sleep or you're not going to be able to eat enough. Um, and this is what happens. So I think up to that point, up till Everest, um, I had climbed, um, Mont Blanc solo and the Matterhorn. Um, so these two mountains I climbed without acclimatization. So I, when I say I spent, you know, three and a half years preparing for Everest, I really kind of did everything I could, you know, I thought about the exposure, I thought about the altitude, I thought about, you know, looking after, um, you know, just watch what I eat. And maybe every now and then I would, um, on purpose, uh, at home uh, or at work uh, ruin my tummy so when I then run home um, you know I would plan this 20-25k run home 
then I would get into trouble. But I did it purposely because I wanted to, uh, I wanted these scenarios to happen, you know, in Richmond Park or near my place, near where I live or near where I work, where, where you feel, still feel a bit more comfortable. But when you're out there, you know, when, when you're on Everest um, and when you sleep in a camp free in the Lottie face, which is a very, very steep ice wall, um, and everything is an angle and, 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 you know, you have to be on the rope just to uh, squat down and pee because people fell to death just by going to the loo. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very, very different scenario. So um, I guess experience comes in when it comes to, you know, being in seven, 8,000 meter peaks um, and, um, and yes, you know, you don't just get there, as you said, you don't just get there from climbing Snowdon one day and next weekend you are in the Himalayas at eight. You know, it's all a progression and it's all building on your experiences and building on fail, failures as well. Not just always, you know, the, the, the happy stories and, and the good climbs, but, but, you know, sometimes things go wrong because it's the mountains. And that's something that's often overlooked when people are looking to increase their distance in, in, athletics endurance running and stuff it's just going further going up mountains it's a different story it's not just a case of going a little bit higher as it is mm. well just look even the oxygen levels alone it they rapidly decrease and am i right in saying there's about when about 30 percent success rate of climbing everest just under yes yes that's that's correct and you know if you look at the overall numbers there are still only about 10 percent of women of that so um yeah absolutely i mean i think the success rates are the success rate is getting better on everest because um probably for a number of reasons but it's it's really really good to see that it's really positive to see that <laughs> it was really funny when we flew out to um when, we, when I flew out to Alaska to climb Denali, um, Denali is one of these mountains, as I, as I mentioned. You know, if, if you get into bad weather there, you could spend not three weeks climbing, three weeks in your tent <laughs> because it's so super remote. No one's going to come, you know, and, and pick you up. Um, and I remember the first thing we had to do when we arrived in Takitna, this is a, a small uh, village where the expedition starts or where, where we all gather in the Denali National Park. We went to visit the rangers. You have to register. And, and it's also a really cool place to go and see. And at the ranger's office, you see a, a board behind them and the board of how many people are currently on the mountain and how many have succeeded in, in within the season. And I remember we were just looking, at, looking up the numbers thinking, oh my God, come on guys, we have to go out there. And, you know, the, the, it's just so poor, and, you know, because of the weather, because of the conditions. And, and we were like, wow, um, it's, it's a realization. And then, yes, you, you get there and then you could be in the worst storm in your life. And, you know, so many things can kind of stop you from uh, succeeding. So, you know, when I say, as I climbed the seven summits, I think I'm more proud of climbing them all on the first attempt. You know, I never had to go back and, and climb it again. I managed to climb them all on the first attempt, which Denali is a rare thing. Um, and I guess Everest, uh, you know, people do tend to go back to Everest <laughs> at least a couple of times. Yeah. So when we talk about kind of the low success rates and the reasons for that are so often things that you can't possibly prepare yourself for. You know, you could be 
physically, mentally in the best possible place, if the weather says no, the mountain says no, you're not, you're not getting to the top. How do you prepare yourself for these potential scenarios before you go so that you don't, you know, in the, the event that you can't get to the summit, you don't then come down and say, well, that was a waste of time and never go for it again. Yeah, I think I can call myself really, really lucky that I managed to climb them all on the first attempt. But don't think it's because the weather was always gorgeous. You know, I, I am a little bit stubborn and I guess in, in certain situations, for example, Aconcagua, you know, I can give you an example. Um, I had, uh, I planned Aconcagua. I had this romantic image in my head that Aconcagua, South American, Argentina, uh, the best weather window to climb it is December and January. So I thought, hey, I really want to spend Christmas on Aconcagua. You know, by that point, um, I kind of got got used to the fact, got used to the idea to meet a group of new people and then, you know, and then and to spend Christmas with them. I thought it was just going to be such a cool, such a good way to spend, you know, Christmas Eve at base camp. And I get a call from the expedition company I booked it with, and they said, "Hey, the only other person who was booked on this trip on this expedition uh, just pulled out." And I, I very nearly had to pull out as well because I had a double hamstring tear in in one of my legs from doing stupid things like half marathon trying to get a PB or something like that. And uh, I only had a, a green light from the doctors a few weeks before that expedition. I was super stressed about not being able to go. So, you know, once I know that I'm on the plane flying out and starting the expedition, that's when I know I, I'm 100, well, I, as prepared and re ready as one can be. And before each expedition, I have a phone call with my parents and they would, you know, my mom would be super worried and very stressful. I said, mom, I am fit, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm mentally there. If you're praying for me, pray for good weather because that is the only thing that I have zero control over, how good the weather is going to be. So anyway, we are in Aconcagua and I, I, I'm there with a local guide because they didn't even send a, a Westerner guide with me because I was by myself. So I, I meet this local guide and we started, we started uh, uh, the expedition, just the two of us. And I guess because of that, you didn't have a group to tailor uh, the daily hikes and walks. And um, so we could just really see how well we were doing. But he was massively putting the brakes on. And I didn't quite understand. You know, you see these big Westerner teams, you know, everyone in their uh, super high tech gear and they're marching past us and they're getting into the next camp as fast as they could. And and above base camp, I mean, I mean, I'm looking up and this is Christmas. I did end up spending Christmas at base camp on my own. And I'm, I'm looking up the wall towards camp one. And you, you see these guys kind of falling off, like, like collapsing and struggling because they were pushed so hard. And me and my guide, we had this pretty easy approach. We said, this is not a race. Let's just get from camp to camp and camp to camp. So then we get to camp three. Okay, so we get to camp three and we knew there was bad weather coming in. We just didn't know how soon it was going to hit camp four. So 
we leave Camp 3, the two of us, and, and I look back and I see, actually, Mike, Mike Hamia was there, uh, who then was my Everest guide. Um, so I look back and Mike's team is there. I'm like, crap, if Mike is not coming up to Camp 4, this, this is not good news. Um, so me and the guide, uh, we pushed up to Camp 4. Uh, we got into our tent that night. I mean, it just felt like... It just felt like this storm was going to rip the tent above us and just going to, you know, fly away with it. We're going to fly away with it. Uh, we woke up when we said we'd get our foot of summit night. So we woke up in the middle of the night, started making breakfast inside the tent. And you could hardly sit inside the tent. You know, it was so stormy and, uh, and actually a little bit scary as well. So you up at camp four um, and we could hear there was another team who came up from the other side of the mountain. So they started leaving uh, for the summit. And then we were, we were waiting, waiting, waiting. And then we said, we looked at our watch and we said, what's the latest we can go to still get to the top and still come back? And it's all about safety. So we got ready, uh, we set off. And then one by one, the other team members were turning around, they were coming back. And that's never really a good sign. You know, you want to high five people, you want them to come back with big smile on their face. And, 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 and they were, you know, they, they turned around and they, they turned around, not even anywhere near the summit. You know, they, they went out for maybe a, a half an hour and they came back and we thought, okay, how safe is this? But because it was just the two of us, we managed to keep it safe. And, you know, we were roped together, we were moving together slowly. And I remember thinking, you just, you just have to put, you just, you just have to do one step at a time. And I would have landmarks that I would want to get to. And at each landmark, we reassess the situation, how safe it was for us to continue. And I remember next thing I know, we are in the summit, just the two of us. Um, I think there, there was only another climber that day with his guide who summited. And after us, there was no summit for the rest of the season because of the conditions. So, yeah, like sometimes, I think sometimes it's my stubbornness that, uh, that definitely pushes me further and, and not letting me to give up when things get a little bit tough. So I want to get back to something you said earlier about how you believe people should have to have completed a, an 8,000 meter summit before they're allowed to attempt Everest. And that's for obvious reasons, things we've seen in the news the last couple of years with huge crowds up there and people being inexperienced and essentially making it dangerous for more experienced climbers on the, the mountain as well as for themselves. So when you were doing Everest, did you find that was a problem, that there were inexperienced climbers up there that potentially put you and others at risk because of their, their inability or their inexperience, or were you quite lucky in that regard? Um, okay, so first of all... Um... You know, when you are on on something like Everest, you are on an 8,000 meter peak, uh, you, of course, your team is not just the only team. You have to accept that uh, because the season is so short. Um, Everest in particular has... Um, 
mainly one season and that's uh, spring you know that's april and may uh, very few people try to go out in winter of course there will be much less <laughs> at base camp uh at winter time but uh, but but pe people climb it in 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 the spring so you or you have to accept that uh that there will be others the other thing that um is interesting is that everybody gets the same weather forecast so of course each team has their own kind of weather people whether they are based in the world um, but we all know when a good window is we all know um, when the first second waves of summits will be happening um, and I guess um, as a climber you're then in the hands of your expedition uh, provider and and you are in in his hands or their hands to decide hey guys okay um, this is how our acclimatization rotations went um, this is what we're going to do for the summits and this was one of the hardest part I think for me at base camp um, after the second rotation is just to be at base camp and then Every single day, we would be going into the dining tent. I would be like, Mike, what's the weather forecast? What, you know, can you tell us something? And he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't get our hopes up until he knew exactly then we would have the weather window. And the weather window, in his mind, you know, just how incredibly experienced Hamill is, it wouldn't just be one day. It wouldn't just be, okay, uh, crappy weather, but just around your summit push, there is a good five hours. We would have had to have a good day before and two good days after. That was, that was his, um, you know, his aim. He, this is when experience comes in. So, you know, because of that, of course, other teams have the same idea. Uh, of course, other teams have the same idea. And uh, we all have to wait for the Sherpas to fix the ropes to the top. Okay, so nobody gets up to the top before them until the Sherpas fix the very last um, bit of rope you know, almost, almost all the way to the summit. So, so that's, that's the first kind of wave, the, uh, the summit fixes, the raw fixes sh uh, Sherpas. And then I think we were in very, very soon after, after that, we were in one of the first teams who were in the kind of the next, um, next wave. And, and that, that was a really good idea. However, as I said, yeah, other teams had the same idea as well. So on my summit night, um, me and my Sherpa buddy, of course, we are in a team, but when it comes to the summit night, then you are all individuals with your Sherpa buddies that you've been training with the last couple of weeks. Um, we decided to leave at 8.30. So I climbed out of my tent and I look up and there were already headlamps like a snake uh, up, up, you know, up on Everest. And you think just how early is it getting? You know, back in the days, people leave maybe after midnight, one o'clock, and it's getting earlier and earlier. And I think what sometimes they're trying to do is they try, they try to maybe push the slower climbers um, up first, but then because they're slow, they're not moving that fast and everybody else gets stuck behind them. And this is what happened to us as well on, on Everest. You know, you are climbing up towards the balcony and, you know, it's, it's beautiful starry sky and you pretty much hyped up because, hey, you know, you're climbing Everest and you've got your oxygen mask on and you're like, oh my God, this is happening. And you can't really move your own pace. 
Uh, because there are slow climbers in front of you. And it's not quite like other mountains where you can just go random, okay? So you pretty much in the line and not as bad. Okay, I didn't have an experience like you could see in the media. And, and that may have been a one-off thing. So luckily, you know, I, I never had to experience that. Um, but certainly at the beginning of the summit push, when a lot of people are still together, and after that, you know, it scatters. But up to the balcony, it was very slow moving. Very slow moving. So we hear about instances where people are putting crampons on for the first time when they get to the ice falls or they get to Hillary's step and they don't have the, the confidence to, to climb the ropes to get over it. And, you know, that's just going to be dangerous for everyone else that's on there as well. If oh. you're stuck up there and you've got this small window and you're behind them and the weather's coming in, then, you know, a lot of people could die because of other people who've been allowed to do, you know you can't put all the emphasis on them they shouldn't be there but they've been allowed to go there some tour guide has said yeah you can come along don't worry about it yeah absolutely and i really really hope this is something that's going to change in the future um i did see one example when um we were uh, it was just after the Kumbuais fall um, and they're not quite camp one yet. So you're still climbing over the ladders, which you've probably seen in videos and YouTube and the famous Everest movie. And that's, you know, a huge crevasse uh, underneath. But I also mentioned that these, you know, the mountain is moving and, and the ice blocks are moving. Um, so there was a part uh, during our second rotation that wasn't there before. So there was a gap that wasn't there before. It wasn't big enough for needing a ladder but it needed quite a big jump or quite a, a bit of a courage to, you know, to, to get over it. So, so we, 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 are, we, we get there and, and there's a, there's a, a climber who was stuck there and uh, this climber had two Sherpas uh, or maybe one was a portable, but one had all her climbing gear as well as her harness, you know, the stuff that is permanently on you, but she had, all this climbing gear stripped off her just so she could be the lightest that she could. And she still needed two hands, um, two pairs of hands to get her over. I'm pretty sure she didn't summit because this is when the mountains just suddenly starts, you know, the natural selection kicks in. Um, and she may have gone on the other side and she may have, you know, then climbed up to the next camp. But I couldn't see a person like that doing these rotations over and over again or, you know, between camp one and camp two, the year I climbed, the earth moved so much that there was a 40 foot vertical wall, which wasn't, was never there before. I don't think a person like that should really be on the mountain, but who am I to judge? But there was an example of she's definitely this person should not have been on the mountain and not because she got there she was a bit like oh okay i just need a bit of a kick in the butt you know to to get over this and get up the ladder which sometimes i needed as well and then you know the next time you nail it and next time you love it uh, this person was looked so in inexperienced um to me that I, I thought that was a little bit, that was a little bit dangerous, but I really, really hope this is going to change. And as I said, this was the only example. Our team was, you know, Mike wouldn't have, Mike selected these super strong guys. I remember we came back from the first rotation and I, I sat down with Mike and I said, Hey, uh, like, 
am I slow? <laughs> because all my teammates, all these guys are just like super fast. And he said, if you have no idea just how strong we are. So we still, I'm still stronger than, you know, the other teams, but you know, he would never let me um, think about that. You know, we were absolutely, you know, we got all this positivity and, and it was great. You know, we're supporting each other. Um, it, it was a fantastic team. And of course, experience comes into hand as well. So I knew what a Mike said and the team he would put together, then we would be a very, um, very highly experienced and strong team. And then when you're part of a team like that, that definitely gives you a boost as well. So I mentioned Hillary's step, um, which like the ice falls is another one of the, the really iconic parts of uh, the Everest ascent. Um, it's obviously named after Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first person to, to summit or his team were the first team to summit. And I believe were the first to get over Hillary's step. And that's why it's, it's named Hillary step and that's renowned as being quite a tough part it's a vertical rock face and a lot of people struggle with it so just tell us a little bit about your experience with um getting over Hillary's step yeah so actually that was the other reason I wanted to climb from the south from the Nepali side because I wanted to experience it I wanted to see that um, and then the earthquake happened um, the year before. And of course, uh, that section of the mountain got a little bit damaged. So you no longer climb over it. You climb kind of around it. Um, but I had, I have some fantastic memories from uh, the Hillary step because um, when I, when I got, when we got just below with my, with my Sherpa buddy, uh, we decided to swap um, uh, our oxygen tank that's there's a really nice place where you can um can, you know put your oxygen down and just change the oxygen bottle um as safely as possible at uh, yeah, at that altitude and um and you know, it was daylight by the by the time we got there or it was light uh, and i could see my teammates as well and they were also at the very very same spot um because me and my ship buddy we were just like a, an old machine and by that point uh, we got back on the on the fixed rope before my teammates um and uh, that was really cool that was really cool because we we, we got back on the on the rope continued climbing uh, and then my teammates were then behind me and I heard um, uh, Casey, he's a Westerner guide for, he was the Westerner guide for my teammates and he radiated Mike in and he said, oh yeah, hey, uh, yeah, and we've got Alex here as well. And I was like, yeah, Alex is here, Alex is still here, Alex is still climbing and how awesome is this? So I just, and it's, it's such a clear moment, you know, I can close my eyes and I can, I can absolutely picture exactly where I was. So um, yeah, I, the way I guess we climbed were really strong and everything was clear you know I never had to be dragged up the mountain I never really I never wanted to be dragged up the mountain but but that particular spot is such an as you said it's such an iconic place I just wish I ever had the uh, chance to climb over it but of course you know there is a route around and you're still climbing like right next to the steps so uh, yeah no, it was it was fantastic I absolutely loved it it's awesome to hear how everything's gone so well. Are there any stories, particularly with Everest, any of the others where things didn't go so well and really put a big hurdle in the step on the way? Yeah, 
Yeah, so that was that was me as well. So I, I my mosque was broken. So I was pretty much suffocated by my mosque, which should have been um, something there to help me. So when uh, actually, so I rewind. So I, I climb out of my tent uh, in the depth zone at 8,000 meter camp four. Okay, so I climb out of my tent uh, with with my gear. Um, I'm ready to rock and roll. Then one of my Sherpa friends come up to me. He's part of uh, our team. And he says, um, hey, Tashi has been unwell. My, my Sherpa friend, my Sherpa buddy has been unwell since we got to camp four. Um, he's not going to be able to climb to the summit with you so you know this is a guy who um i got to enormously respect and i got to know you know during those three weeks of training together um uh, doing acclimatization rotations together uh he became my friend i knew about his life i knew about his family vice versa we, we became a very like strong team team of two and to hear that he's doing, you know, he's, he's unwell and he's not going to be able to come with me. Um, I just didn't know what to do. And uh, for a second, I thought I, I shouldn't continue because, because it's selfish. I, sh I shouldn't go up to the top. You know, this guy, we, we, we've been training, we've been sharing all these experiences together. I shouldn't go up uh, by myself. And... Um, and then I was told that there, his uncle was actually there. They were waking up his uncle at a time when I was already outside uh, with my, you know, rocks, kind of everything ready for the summit. So they were waking up his uncle um, who was meant to be carrying oxygen for my teammates. So he wasn't there. He's not a guy, you know, he wasn't a guide. He wasn't there to guide or, you know, being a sure body for someone. He was there as, um, as this, you know, support person. They were waking him up, giving him tea, kind of packing his bag. Um, and they said, oh, don't, don't worry, Didi. Uh, this is sister for, you know, in Nepali, how they call uh, women, Didi as hey sister. Uh, don't worry, he's very strong. And I said, oh, okay, but okay, great. And um, he didn't speak English. Uh, I don't speak Nepali. So he then gets ready and, and we, we, we go to the summit together. So suddenly I am... Um, roped to a person I've never met before, I've never spoken to before, we don't even speak the same language. And oh my God, guys, this is what, this is what then happened next. We, we, within very, very short time, had to create a bond that other people would create for weeks with their climbing partners. So, you know, we were already in situ, we were already climbing Everest. We were already on our summit push when I was put together with a person that, and it's not just selfishly, you know, I shouldn't just think, hey, is he going to be, you know, okay for me? Am I, am I going to be, you know, if he gets into trouble, am I going to be able to communicate with him? Am I going to be able to help him? Um, and yeah, and so, so, so we then started climbing uh, under the balcony when I mentioned that there, there were quite a few people and then you hardly can climb in your own pace and you're kind of stuck and you just want to push and, and suddenly I was struggling to breathe and I asked the climber behind me to check my um, the, to check my oxygen bottle and he gave me a thumbs up because obviously you have a mask you can't really talk but you know you just 
use sign language and i'm looking at the uh, i'm looking at the regulator it was fine i'm looking at the tube it was fine and somehow that there was just no air coming in i'm like okay this is a bit this is not good and it's not because something wrong with my body there there's something happening um anyway we get to the balcony and i had to change an oxygen I, I had to change the oxygen uh, bottle and I tried to explain it to, um, I tried to explain it to my Sherpa buddy that it's just, just something is not quite right. And because he didn't know me, he probably thought, okay, here we go. She's getting a bit loopy, <laughs> you know, um, or she's just, you know, maybe not strong enough or just was, I, I don't know what, what was really going through um, his mind, but I don't think he quite believed me. Anyway, we'll be carrying climbing him, and you have the oxygen mask on your face to help you, to help you breathe, to help you, to keep you warm as well. Because if you don't have enough oxygen flowing in your body, you can very, very quickly and easily get frostbitten fingers and toes and, and you know, any part of your part of your body. So I was thinking, right, okay, Alex, <laughs> everything went perfectly smooth up until this point, until you are literally in the death zone, your body is dying, and then you're wearing a mask that should be saving your life instead of suffocating you. So I would do one step, put my ice aches like firmly, like stab it into the ground. Next step, pull the mask away to breathe air from outside. Mask goes back, next step, for ice aches, first, uh, firmly in the ground, next step, pull it. So this is how we were climbing. And there was no place to stop, no place to you know, fix the mask. We didn't even know what was wrong, but I definitely knew something was wrong. Anyway, we get to a point where um, we swap masks and I put his on and this sudden burst of oxygen it hit my face. It's like, wow, this is what feels like breathing. Um, and he put my broken mask on. And then I asked him with sign language if, if, if what, what, what he thought. And, and he showed me that it was broken. And I'm like, oh my goodness, how, how are we going to continue? So he kept my broken mask on. And I had his mask. So this is how we finished the summit push. And geez, when the guy said at Camp 4 that this guy was going to be strong, he, he was strong. He was super strong. Uh, there was another point that I remember, and this was just below the summit, where he stopped again and he turned around. And um, I was like, oh my God, what now? What, 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 what's going on? And he gave me the thumbs up. He pointed at my broken mask. He gave me a thumbs up and he said that it's now working again. And this was just under the summit. I had tears in my eyes. And I climbed very close up to him and I gave him a massive hug. And that was the point I knew we were going to summit. Like nothing else could have stopped us. Nothing else could have stopped me on that night. We were going to get to the top. So you've, you've done Everest. You've done all of the seven summits. You, you've recently moved to the Swiss Alps and you're working as a mountain guide. Am I right now out there? 
No, no, yeah, no, I'd love to. <laughs> no, I am hunting guy. No, I, I'm actually writing a book on the seven summits. Um, because when I was training, I didn't really find anything that that would be like a storyteller, but as well as uh, a book that would have lots of really cool information, you know, uh, because I will be telling stories as they were, but I, I'm also going to... I'm also going to give lots of tips and advice and that's based on the, the things that went wrong for me or went really super well for me. Um, and I, I think it's something, you know, I read uh, lots of books um, that ultra runners write or uh, triathletes, you know, I am an, um, I am an athlete. And even though I'm not in that sport uh, or I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a, a sailor, but I absolutely love and enjoy reading books and stories of other endurance endurance athletes. Um, and I think there are a lot of things that we experience uh, during our chosen sports or hobbies that you can definitely relate to in real life as well. So I really hope that, you know, my book will not just inspire um, other mountaineers to get out in the mountains, but just people to uh, go off the things they life and challenge themselves and push themselves and have you got a date in mind that you're hoping the book will be available well so i moved i moved to the office a month and a half ago and i kind of had in mind to finish the book um, maybe the end of september and i have to be brutally honest i'm spending an awful lot of time in the mountains instead of on my laptop <laughs> because i guess because um i was i was in london during the lockdown and i broke my foot during the lockdown as well so i've just been absolutely itching to get back in the mountains and you know as soon as my foot was strong enough so i could push the clutch um i packed my car <laughs> i put my bikes my mountain bike and my uh touring road bike in my car um and all the things i thought i would need for the rest of the summer and kind of colder conditions uh and, and i moved over and, and since then i've pretty much been you know my foot needed a couple of weeks at the beginning to get stronger but every day i'm i'm hiking i'm, I'm up in the mountains I'm, I'm trail running um um um, you know i'm on my bikes and and just absolutely living it so yes the answer to your question is um <laughs> and i don't know that the funny thing is because the summer here is so hot even though i'm at altitude the summer is so hot and i'm used to the british you know the british weather so i'm like i'm actually waiting for the autumn here i'm actually waiting for the temperatures to cool down um and uh, and the other the other morning there's uh, there's this beautiful run up to this uh, tiny pond up at 2,400 meters. And the first time I, I did this loop in an hour and three, four minutes, I'm like, I want to get under an hour. I want to get, and, and, and I managed to get under an hour. And it's so nice to have these things uh, here. And I remember the day I managed to get under an hour. It was a perfect kind of a typical British weather. And it was cool. It was overcast. There was a bit of a wind. It was a bit moody. I'm like, this is it. <laughs> I, this is where I can, you know, uh, where I feel like uh, I'm in my elements when it's a bit cold, when it's a bit muddy. Um, so yes, I'm actually also looking forward to the seasons to change. And I, I hear that the, the winter here starts in November time. 
time. So I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely buzzing about, you know, getting it to snowboarding and do some ski touring as well. So have you got any more challenges lined up or are you kind of having some downtime now, done what you wanted to do and focusing on other things? Yeah, so I, I did have a challenge for this year, but because of uh, because of the virus, yeah, 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 I, I couldn't. So um, in, it's just, again, interesting how so now life kind of um, uh, led me this way back to the mountains, of course, which I'm very, very happy about. So I decided to take the rest of the year, you know, try to finish my book, hopefully uh, finish it uh, before Christmas. So in the next couple of months, um, finish my book. And during this time I would um you know I'm definitely considering doing a mountain leader course um doing you know gaining more experience in the mountains uh, maybe climb a couple of 4,000 meter peaks maybe join a couple of 4,000 meter peaks but but nothing as big as the seven summits but of course I have ideas <laughs> um I do have ideas and I think eventually you know I have to kind of find a job here uh, <laughs> uh because I, I I can't just unfortunately stay here um without without working but that's that's going to be then the next chapter in my life until then i'm just gonna you know work on getting physically stronger finish my book and explore as much as i can and kind of give game more experiences in the mountains if that's so you consider that as the next chapter you said you got ideas there must there must be something you want to <laughs> yeah seek out <laughs> well um I can say that I'm definitely a, a person who prefers the cold. So if I do look at um, further challenges, further seven summits, um, I would probably be looking at uh, something that has um, mountains, snow, ice. um yeah nothing nothing specific you know I haven't booked anything I luckily I haven't booked anything for this year because that would have gone you know down down the low I guess um which is really lucky you know I didn't have to cancel massive plans or massive expeditions this year just a couple of shorter races or not shorter but like different challenges um I was meant to do an ultra ultra uh ride uh, around the island of Corsica um because I do quite a lot of uh, bike touring I thought hey how could I you know how could I push myself yeah sign up to an ultra road race um that unfortunately got cancelled. Um, but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely focusing on um, learning how to ski well, because I figured that that's a different, that's another way to be in the mountains. Uh, and I think that for me would just maybe open up more opportunities and possibly give me more ideas. I've already got ideas, but, but possibly give me those, the skill sets that that's what I would like to say. You know, I, I wouldn't just want to kind of sign up to something totally crazy. I would quite like to do pretty well at it and, and maybe look at kind of certain, you know, you know, shave off days or, you know, times here and there and see what I could do if I could do them in, in faster times or solo unsupported that, 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 that sort of thing 
um, you know, having done the seven summits with teams uh, was fantastic. And that's the only way you can climb them. Um, but I'm very much of a lonely wolf. I love, you know, being out in nature and um, being on my mountain bike and crossing the Alps, you know, for 10 days. And I did that last summer because I just needed to be back in the mountains. Um, so I think if, if I do pick a challenge, there may be something solo. Uh, but I'm also looking at, you know, teaming up with other people. I'd love to get um, you know, I love to get a group of women out there doing some crazy stuff. I did my mountain bike leader course last year. Um, so there's definitely something I'd love to do because I think what I experience when I'm out on the bike um, and do these tours and set up a tent at the end of the day um, and watch a sunset from a mountaintop, I just think, hey, I would really, really would love to share that with other people. So it's a huge passion of mine. This is why I do, you know, uh, talks and, and stuff, because I really want other people to kind of hear about these stories and hopefully, um, hopefully for them to also experience it. Yeah, all sounds great. Definitely look forward to reading your book, and we'll uh, we'll have to get you back on once it's out and available, and you can just <laughs> chat about the book for a bit. But thank you so much for coming on; it's been really, really good. Where can people go to to find out a bit more about you? And uh, yeah, where can they find you? Uh, well, I am uh, I am active on on, on Instagram, uh, so uh, my Instagram account is Alex Seven Summit. So that's Alex Number Seven Summit. Uh, my website is the same, alex7summits.com. Um, my full name is Alexandra Nemeth. So once you see my Instagram account, you can find me on Facebook as well. Um, and you know, if you have any questions, uh, maybe not just about you know Everest, uh, maybe it's about my training, or maybe about you know um, uh, a question that coming from maybe a female um, athlete or uh, someone uh, who is in sports or trying to get into sports then I'm very very open and um, I think it's it's super important to you know uh, share our experiences and I try to help you know if, if I can um, I would love to so anyone who would like to get in touch maybe follow my story um, then yeah please uh, please do so awesome Luke same question yeah, um, before I get into that, I was going to say anyone who hasn't checked out Alex's Instagram yet, for somebody who said they did, they never used to like taking landscape pictures, check it out. There's some wicked pictures in there, I've got to say. Um, if you want to see an Instagram account with less inspiring pictures, but maybe quite helpful for sports therapy things, then I'm zen underscore anatomy on Instagram, and zen anatomy sports therapy on facebook and my website is zenanatomy.co.uk and i'm at paul rose pt across the board and paulrosept.com uh, thanks very much for tuning in today and we will speak to you next time goodbye